0: I hope you don't mind if we start. I'm Juan Lindau in the poli-sci department, and I'm feeling greatly honored that David asked me to introduce him. I'll keep this relatively brief, um, at least as much as I'm capable of doing. Um, I won't review David's extensive scholarly record beyond saying that he's in seven books, and no doubt many more will come, given the fire that still burns in his belly on this matter and dozens of articles in the top journals in the field and he's acquired a deserved international reputation as a result of really what constitutes a truly extraordinary scholarly output for somebody at a liberal arts college. Um, He also as you guys know is about as much a child of CC as one could possibly be, having graduated from here in 76, left to go to Johns Hopkins for his PhD, and then returned here as a professor in 1983. Um, now I want to turn to what actually matters to me, which is the personal. Um, and just to say this very briefly, um, my father was given to very oracular statements. Um, I think he felt this kind of, kind of Jewy, biblical thing, (laughs) and when I was a wee lad, he said to me, knowledge is the mother of all profound insights, and I didn't really understand what he meant, um, though everything since has validated this particular irregular statement. Why do I say this? Well, when I came to CC 31 years ago, I could never have imagined meeting somebody who has gifted me with so many profound insights and about so many different topics. Um, My friendship with David has been an endless source of intellectual discovery for me. His erudition, his iconoclasm um, have enlivened so many conversations, have given me different views of the world that I didn't previously have. And so for me, this relationship has been among the most extraordinary and fruitful things in my life. I mean, I can't exaggerate the meaning of this friendship to me. Um, I would also add, and this is even more personal, that um, I love David most of all for his humanism, his resolute um, passion for underdogs, and perhaps more than anything else, his profound belief in the essential value of empathy. I think his concern with empathy lies at the heart of his scholarship, especially for somebody who studies the United States and who has to daily confront the reality that the United States, because of American exceptionalism, because of our virtually limitless power, um, often acts with extraordinary arrogance, with little regard for how others perceive us, and with even less regard for the consequences of our acts on others. And I think it's David's deep humanism that has driven him to become such an intense critic of all of these features of American foreign policy. And I will finally conclude that I uh, love David because he became more like me. (laughs) <laughs> um, when I arrived here, uh, I thought that Ronald Reagan was the most horrifying president in American history. And I soon discovered that David had voted for him. And I thought, holy cow, I've not only landed in Colorado Springs, but now I'm hoisted on this conservative petard. And lo and behold, as the years went by, I stayed the same and he traveled. And we now arrived at the point of relative congruence on the of that. <laughs> On that note,
1: David Henderson. Yeah, well, that Reagan thing, I guess I do have a few apologies to make about that. I thought you were going to embarrass me. You practically made me cry. Um, you know, you acquire so many wonderful friendships in the course of a, uh, of a career and being in a certain place that I... I'm very well blessed with uh, so many of those, uh, so many of you who are here. Uh, I've learned so much from you. And um, so that uh, that's a wonderful thing. I was uh, happy that Jen Sides gave me the prompt of, you know, what would you say if this is your last lecture ever? And uh, not at CC, not anywhere else. but. You know, the end, finito, your last will and testament. So I put it off for as long as possible thinking about that. Um, Considering this existential question, it's been nagging me, eating at my innards. uh, How to put all my effort and all my knowledge, such as it is, into digestible, bite-sized exemplars of universal truth. To be passed on down the ages, if any of you care to relate what I've said today to others. So, um, I want to say a few things about teaching. Uh, as a professor, um, you know it is really fun to teach, or can be. And uh, I. I learned so much from not only my colleagues, but also my students. Um, you know, every year in the tutorial, you would get a masterpiece, and then frequently several, really first-rate productions. And uh, you know, the, the, the sophomores were less likely to come up with things, and it's true that when you had the four-inch stack of papers to create, <laughs> it's a little forbidding, but, you know, there really is nothing better than talking over a subject with a student. And they have this sort of spark of curiosity and insight and see how to do something and uh, to see that develop, you know, and and then to read the grand productions uh, doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough to make it an extremely rewarding career. I guess the main thing that I really enjoyed the most was the paper consultations on the golf course. You know, I'd play golf with a couple of students and would work through the problems and achieve a magnificent breakthrough in organizing the thesis and then drink too much, you know, at the Patty Jewett Bar and Grill. So uh, that was good. Thank you for putting up with my unconventional methods by way of instruction. That's my first thought. Um, My second thought is um, you must remain faithful to the mission of the Liberal Arts College. Uh, We seem to have gotten the idea that this institution can set itself against and above the larger society, becoming an isolated outpost like a habitation on Mars that can sustain itself in a forbiddingly hostile environment. I don't believe that. I don't think that formula works over time. But you'll be pleased to learn that I don't intend to vent about that subject today. Besides, I don't have much to say that's original. You can read all about it in the collected works of Michael Oakeshott and Timothy Buller, if you wish. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to vent about international relations and American foreign policy, my specialty, and then draw a few lessons, my five-point plan, for saving this country and the whole human race from folly and uh, I think I can do that without much consequence. Uh, one of the things I was struck by when I went to China is that the intellectuals didn't have much freedom, but they had a lot of power. Uh, in America, you know, if a professor sounds off, criticizes the government, it just passes off into the other. But in China, if a professor criticizes the government, the world shakes. The mandate of heaven, you know, comes crashing down. And uh, uh, my advice to the Chinese government is, uh, let them think freely and speak, then ignore them. That works great here. And uh, that's my advice to them. Now, uh, as to what it is, the subject matter of international relations, uh, there are some in my field who define that rather narrowly, uh, with a very strict view of the methods deemed scientific. And not so, I say. One 19th century international lawyer said the requisite study, the requisite knowledge for the study of international law and politics was all history, all philosophy, and all law. And I think that's just about right, but I would extend it a bit further, open it up to whatever is relevant to the subject matter. (laughs) Now, there you go. So here on this slide, I think we find the variety of intellectual inquiries in which students of international relations must uh, immerse themselves. And the central objective to which all those arrows point is uh, what Aristotle called pronesis wisdom about the field of international relations that seeks an integrated consideration of the is and the ought, facts and values, empirical theories, and normative boundaries. Uh, Now, it's my proposition that all of these fields of study uh, are necessary to the subject and must be considered as belonging to it. Uh, The slide is my own elaboration of a letter that John Adams once wrote on what you needed to study in order to become a diplomat, Uh, though I've I've extended it a bit beyond what he said. And uh, in defining the object of study in this way, I, I don't want to step on anyone's toes Uh, as each of these areas of understanding has their own specialties. They might laugh if an upstart, if they heard that an upstart professor had said that they were all simply a subfield of the larger field of international relations. An act of academic aggrandizement to rival the worst conquerors in history. Rat that bastard out to the dean of the college. Uh, but I don't mean it that way. I, I just mean that they are part of the inquiry that must be conducted. They're integral to the subject of international relations. And if, from the vantage point, uh, the experts address problems common to the field, as all of them do some of the time, they're not necessarily all the time, well, then they're fellow travelers in the common inquiry and should be considered soldiers, nay at times, commanders uh, in this. International Relations Enterprise. I think of two books that I've read recently by Jennifer Pitts, Boundaries of the International, and a Perry Anderson, The H-Word on Hegemony. Marvelous books, both by historians, um, but as enlightening as anything that a political scientist has written on the subjects. So we want a discipline that enables us to aspire a comprehensive understanding is to reach for wisdom, even though when we start up the mountain, we realize that we're not likely to get there, certainly if we define the subject as broadly as I have. But, uh, you know, sometimes you can look up uh, and uh, to those who have and be grateful for the view. And one be one would be hard-pressed to say which of these specialties is most important, because they're all important. The situation resembles what in agricultural science is called LIPIG's Law of the Minimum. It holds that growth is dictated not by the total resources available, but by the scarcest resource, a limiting factor. So if you deprive them of one crucial nutrient, the rest suffer and they wither and die. No nitrogen, no nothing, even if you love your plant life up with all sorts of other good stuff. And you know, thinking about that, I'm forced to admit that we wouldn't fall, all fall down in ignorance of comparative politics. My brother Lindau's specialty were thrown off. But what would be the point of doing that? Um, the truth is we should be wounded in our understanding. If any one of these rich veins of knowledge were to lie unexploited or ignored, something big would then be missing. I would note parenthetically that our dear departed colleague, Andrew Price Smith, <laughs> He uh, he discoursed frequently on that that theme on behalf of consilience. That was the, one of the first ideas out of his mouth when he came here, and uh, he pursued that. He was a great advocate of uh, interdisciplinary studies. When I wrote that this morning, I didn't break down in tears thinking of Andrew, but. Uh, I do see. And uh, how perceptive he was to say that, that is to understand the problems of health and the health of nations and the chaos that contagion can cause is central to the subject. And he showed that in two outstanding works. So why does political philosophy conjoined here to the history of international thought make an appearance on a figure? Well, the short answer is that the best of the political philosophers saw the primacy that had to be accorded to international relations. Building or imagining the best regime, they came to realize, could be an idle enterprise if it were overwhelmed or corrupted by a hostile international environment. Kant, Montesquieu, Rousseau, Constant all saw this, as did the American founders. Going back further, Cicero and Grotius saw it. As Cicero truly said, wrote Grotius, master science is the one which deals with alliances, agreements, and bargains between peoples, kings, and foreign nations. That is, with all the rights of war and peace. He then cited Euripides. You who know the affairs of gods and men present and to come are worthless still if what is just escapes you. So I admit that master science might rub people the wrong way, but once one accepts the ability of the international anarchy to ruin domestic felicity, uh, to devour it, it becomes the first order problem to which everything else is secondary. And being secondary can still be of earth-shattering abilities. So it's no derogation of anything to put IR at the top, but solve that big problem and much happiness and felicity may follow, but fail to solve it, and the conditions of a better existence have their legs taken out beneath them. So how are we doing on that score that is in solving the war problem? Not so well, I think. I think we've entered a very dangerous period. We have a renewed arms race and renewed ideological competition, the bile index measuring the amount of vitriol spilled across international datelines is off the charts. He seem to be intent on ignoring Napoleon's advice. If they want peace, nations should avoid the pinpricks that precede cannon shots. 25 years ago, strategists observed the great power of war was unthinkable. Well, it's no longer unthinkable. Uh, For the last two decades, I've counted on the Democrats to push back against Republican war mongering, but now they're as belligerent as Trump is. So that's not a good omen. What's the remedy for this? Is it a 15 carrier battle fleet or new bases in Poland for dominance of space? No, none of these things. I say it consists of a return to liberalism, It is to a liberalism that once was, but is no more. Now, what liberalism is or has become is a big question. a book might might need to be written on that topic by someone who has a lot of time on his hands. Um, The key point I want to make to you is that we find the foundation of the liberal approach to international relations in the thought of Thomas Hobbes. Now, that may seem like a crazy idea, as Hobbes is universally known in my discipline of international relations as an amoral warmonger. I think this misreads Hobbes. Hobbes, it seems to me, is a philosopher of peace. His crucial contribution was his total rethinking of the natural law tradition. Hobbes reformulation totally recasts that tradition and put it on an entirely different basis. Next slide. So here we have Hobbes' formulation of the uh, laws of nature, which I've abridged and summarized, uh, unfortunately, doesn't quite fit. Uh, For the 21st century, um, fairly straightforward set of commands, seek peace distribute liberty equally, keep faith, be grateful, avoid revenge and punishments, keep it to yourself. (laughs) Their right is as good as yours, submit to arbitration. And in some, the golden rule, do not that to another, which thou wouldst not have done to thyself. Now, Hobbes' conception of this is not natural law, as that term was traditionally understood. His version came not from on high, but from man and his existential condition, figuring out how to survive. Crucially, too, Hobbes understood the laws of nature as theorems concerning what conduceth to the conservation and defense of themselves. I mean, they weren't there to improve your character, though if you followed them, it probably would, but to save your butt. They were for security. Uh, these laws, which he also elsewhere summarized as justice, gratitude, modesty, equity, mercy, and the rest, he said these were the means to peace. And the science of them he considered the true and only moral philosophy. Uh, Now I think that these come pretty close to objective truth. And uh, if one thinks about um, why that's the case, all you have to do is reverse them and think about the converse and uh, imagine a situation in which everyone claims more than their share when they display hatred and ingratitude towards others, when they set themselves apart from the human race and claiming special rights unique to them alone, when they use force whenever they feel like it. If you wanted to demonstrate these undemonstrable propositions, you would need to highlight in your argument the ways in which injustice and gratitude, immodesty, inequity, and mercilessness conduce to the good society. I don't think we can do this it's obvious where such perverse rules would lead isn't it now it's true of course that people may interpret these commands in different ways in certain circumstances the rules themselves might point to contradictory courses of action and reflection on this point illustrates to me that the difficulty we face in arriving at normative truth is actually very similar to the difficulty we face in arriving at empirical truths. The problem is not that there are no objective moral truths, it's that there are many of them, and we lack the objective criteria to order them. Uh, But it may be a lot easier to arrive at normative truth than empirical truth. I think that we can all agree that murder is wrong, and that's a lot easier than determining the causes of the First World War about every historical episode, there's a dozen different interpretations and they proliferate. Uh, Consensus is never reached. Whereas with regard to basic normative questions, we actually do have a basis for reaching agreement, even across civilizations. And even though those civilizations may order those truths in a somewhat different fashion. Well, you all are probably wondering what all of this has to do with international relations. And uh, the answer is that Hobbes laid the foundation of the law of nations in these maxims derived from the law of natures. He wrote, the laws of nature were nothing other than the law of nations. Uh, the expressions were synonymous. Uh, both Pufendorf and Vattel in the late 17th and 18th century take him up on that proposition. Hobbes doesn't really pursue it, uh, interestingly enough. But my man Vittel, uh, in this book, as uh, you can see, his great treatise, which was the most influential treatise on the law of nations written in the 18th century, um, is the principles of the law of nature applied to the conduct and affairs of nations and sovereigns. Uh, Vittel <laughs> modifies Hobbes' teaching while adopting it. He based his system on Pufendorf's great insight that natural right and international right are not restricted to Christian nations, but are a bond between all nations of whatever religion they may be, inasmuch as every nation is a moral unit of the great human society. Uh, Now the rules dictated by law of nature, both Pufendorf and Vittel argued, could not be precisely the same for states and individuals. Rulers as trustees of a larger community should not sacrifice the public weal in a personal whim, for example, though a few quixotic individuals embracing a noble aim might sacrifice themselves without any harm to society. Uh, so they made various modifications and, ex- and exceptions, but on the whole, the law of nature in their hands prescribed one code of morality for individuals and in nations. Nations were to protect, perfect themselves without violating the rights of others and to aid others without compromising their own interests. Now this conception of the law of nations is given a marvelous expression in Montesquieu's Spirit of the Law where he says, the law of nations is by nature founded on the principle that the various nations should do to one another in times of peace the most good possible and in times of war, the least ill possible, without harming their true interests. So for them, the right of preservation, self-preservation, is fundamental, was shared by all. But it was to be limited in its exercise by the equal correspondent rights of other states, growing out of the same primeval right of self-preservation. States had a right of self-defense, and they could, as a last resort, seek justice in war, but they were also commanded to seek peace and were invited to pursue a variety of paths, such as conciliation or arbitration or conference by which to do so. The essential idea was to establish friendship on the basis of equality and the reciprocal respect for right, not superiority and dominance. You get to security and prosperity by respecting justice and adoring liberty. That's the essential message. Now, these ideas had a big impact on the American founders. Uh, Alexander Hamilton in The Farmer Refuted, when he's 17 years old, it's really one of the best pamphlets stating the American case, You know, certainly equal to James Wilson or Jefferson or uh, other contemporaneous uh, productions. And his advice is, apply yourself without delay to the study of the law of nature. Jefferson bases his appeal in the Declaration of Independence also on the laws of nature and of nature's God. And by the law of nature, he meant what Hobbes and Battelle meant. Back of the phrase nature's God lay the claim by which religious skeptics like Jefferson uh, met religious persecutors in the 18th century. God gave us reason to figure this out, they spit back at the persecutors. You yourself commit the impiety by, in effect, denying the heavenly gift, making everything depend on faith rather than reason. Well, that was a uh, bright moment. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't last. Uh, This whole idea of the law of nature falls to various objections in the 19th century. Uh, The positivist. don't think that you can establish law on the basis of an appeal to nature of any sort. It has to be founded on custom and agreement. Free traders say that parchment barriers are useless and you need to build things on the solid ground of interest. Social scientists, led by Max Weber, direct social science away from normative questions. Now, those are all very complicated obje- questions and objections, which I don't have time to explore, but the basic point is that that health falls to the wayside in the practice of European diplomacy. Uh, interestingly enough, though, when he does so, when he falls to the wayside in Europe, he's taken up elsewhere. So we find that when the British are uh, having a confrontation with China in 1839, uh, the, the, the um, point of which is that British, the British want to become the world's leading drug trader and uh, push mm-hmm. opium into China. and. Uh, the Chinese uh, spokesman uh, gets a, a translation from Vittel and says, you can't do this. Um, well, that didn't make a, bit, a big impression on the British. Uh, when the French were going into Algeria, the French uh, general violated the capitulation. And uh, he was met by this uh, tough pamphlet by an Algerian saying, you, know, you can't do this. And he quoted Vittel to him relying upon the translation in Arabic. Uh, But the big revival of Vitellian ideas comes in the 20th century. You can see that in the League of Nations Covenant uh, and also in the United Nations Charter. Here again, a slideshow. There we are, principles of the United Nations Charter. Sovereign equality, refraining from the threat of force, inviolability of frontiers, territorial integrity, peaceful settlement of disputes, non-intervention, respect for human rights, etc. Now, all of those principles may be found in Patel. Every single one of them. Uh, the UN puts them on a different basis of explicit consent by the signatories. It creates a different institutional mechanism to realize them. But they're essentially battalion ideas as they describe the normative order of international society. And their essential teaching is that political leaders should attend to these normative commitments and stay within them if they wish to conduct a prudent foreign policy. Now, to me, that doesn't seem so difficult. Um, It's like telling an individual, Improve yourself through study and avidity and gumption, but don't rob banks or break into your professor's office to Mm -hmm. steal the test. You know, stay within normative constraints while pursuing your interest. Uh, Simple, right? And statecraft, not so simple. Uh, Now I want to uh, turn to uh, discuss the relevance of these uh, considerations for American foreign policy. The Golden Rule. How does that stand? Well, you'll recall when Ron Paul in 2012 proposed the Golden Rule at a Republican debate in South Carolina, they practically booed him off the stage. Uh, their right is as good as yours? Nope, can't happen. Our rights are more important than their rights. I mean, when? In your recollection, has a discussion of foreign policy focused on the question of the rights of hostile states. Does it ever happen? I don't think it does. should. Avoid revenge and punishments. That's a good one. Well, the whole American penal system is in violation of this. And lots of episodes in foreign policy are mostly in violation of this rule. Uh, I've learned recently, I didn't quite appreciate it at the time, that... When Karzai was installed as the ruler of Afghanistan in December 2001, uh, after that Loya Jirga process, as it was called, uh, the Taliban came to him, many, many leaders, and said, we're willing to give up. We'll go back to our villages. And what did the United States say? No. That's unacceptable, we're going to destroy them. And they tried to destroy them, it blew them up, frequently as they were coming to turn in their arms. And what did we get from that? Well, a 20 year insurgency that we've lost. And I think that really the reason for that is to be found in the violation of Hobbes' ideas of punishment. We were looking back. We said, they let Osama bin Laden onto their territory. They didn't have any idea about what bin Laden wanted to do. They weren't part of that, even though they may have known about it. But they were willing to give it up. And we said, no, we have to punish. I think we were looking back instead of looking forward. Avoid hatred and contempt. Well, you know, that's the national pastime. Uh, That's just a constant in our uh, thinking about foreign countries and foreign rivals. Submit to arbitration. Uh, That's for the little guy. Uh, We make the rules, but are not bound by them ourselves. Seek peace, well, sometimes, to be sure, but on a number of occasions, not at all. So I would say that one or two such violations would be a cause for concern, but the multitude strike one with terror, to paraphrase our good friend Edmund Burke. Now at last I come to the five lessons. Uh, The first lesson is that the great American consensus that it is our mission to spread democracy and human rights everywhere via either military or economic coercion is in standing contradiction to the law of nature and of nations, as it is also in standing contradiction with the UN Charter and with the philosophy of international relations held by the founders. Now, to say this is not at all to denigrate human rights and democracy, the ideas that we associate with it Freedom of the press, of speech, of religion, representative government, the equality of the rights of the citizen, the peaceful transfer of power by elections and the rule of the majority are indeed precious things, marvelous discoveries that promised, when they were first announced, a much better way of doing political things. They're things to be cherished, undoubtedly, but they dictate a responsibility in citizens to prevent these precious beliefs and practices from defilement at home. Not to extend them forcibly abroad. The latter is an illogical inference that finds no support in those now distant thinkers who first imagined a liberal democracy. They thought you changed the world by setting a good example and showing the way that things work best. Then they would emulate you. Uh, it's also a violation of the natural rights of the people invaded a fact which, once grasped, helps illuminate why it failed so completely. And this leads me to my second point. Um, in human affairs, the wound that injustice makes lasts longer and strikes deeper than any other. Uh, those scholars and leaders who say that justice doesn't matter in international relations are mistaken. Uh, and The point is not the normative one. It's the empirical one. It's the way the world works. Uh, They look at the question from the standpoint of the powerful. But to see its force, you have to look at it from the standpoint of those whose rights are violated. Uh, The whole history of the German problem is wrapped up uh, in that uh, proposition. The Germans all remembered throughout the 19th century what France and Napoleon had done to them. And they felt it gave them a pass to act badly, which they then proceeded to do. Um, but that wound that they felt and suffered during the Napoleonic Wars was the thing that drove them. Every increase in their power in the 19th century was a kind of reproach to the French. It led to a very, very bad thing. Uh, my third lesson is that the most important legal and ethical rules for statecraft are themselves also prudential in character. Uh, Hobbes was onto to that proposition too. Uh, that is, they're birthed in some previous misfortune of the human race. And the subsequent command of the law at a basic level simply le- registers the lessons of experience. So we're to think of them like guardrails or speed bumps on a mountain road that prevent you from going off, that keep you reasonably within the straight and narrow. Uh, That's where the rules of religious toleration that were consecrated in the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 came from. It's uh, where the rule against preventive war that's registered in the League of Nations Covenant in the United Nations Charter came from experience. Unfortunately, the idea of law as a restraint on American power, I think, in critical respects has been given up. Senator Moynihan said thirty years ago, international law came to be associated in the United States with weakness in foreign policy. Real men did not subside Russia's. Fourth point. Uh, the long project of the United States to be militarily dominant in all the arenas of competition, air, land, sea, space, cyber, is a big problem from the standpoint of the law of nature and of nations. All the writers on international law said this. It didn't matter where they were. Uh, it, adherents of the law of nature school like Pufendorf and Battelle were positivists like Lasse Oppenheim writing in the early 20th century. That is, they all saw that unbounded power would make a hash in any system of international law. Who would guard the guardian? That was the question. And they all saw that no one could by stipulation. Uh, Therefore it was a something to be avoided. I think the US record over the last 30 years bears this out. Um, Lots of illegality, no external sanctions. Uh, My fifth and final lesson was summed up very nicely by uh, Mahatma Gandhi. What do you think of Western civilization? Gandhi was asked by a journalist. I think it would be a good idea. He said, (laughs) yeah, well, me too.